Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. Today is the, the birthday of the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Shalom Dover, Rebbe Rashav, 148 years ago, in 1860. Um, and the Rebbe Rashav was the founder of the Lubavitcher Yeshiva that we all went to. All the, all the shluchim, all the emissaries of the Rebbe that founded all these Chabad houses all studied in this yeshiva. It's called Tamche Timimim, Lubavitch. And this was founded by the fifth Rebbe. And what was unique about this yeshiva is that there were many yeshivot when he opened this yeshiva. There was no lack of yeshivot, no lack of higher institutions of learning. But what was unique is the blend of studying Hasidut, the inner parts of the Torah, like the Tanya, Hasidut, Hasidic discourses, and studying the usual, the Talmud in depth, and the halacha, and the, the responsa, and, and um, the early commentaries. So the students would spend, a third of the day would spend learning Hasidut, and two-thirds they would spend learning the revealed part of the Torah. And uh, you know, this blend is something that's, that's unique, and they studied Hasidut with the same analytical depth that they would study a piece of Talmud. And the Hasidut infused, the studying of the Talmud infused with an energy, with a, with a, a, re, a renewed enthusiasm, because you realize that you're studying something divine. Otherwise, studying Talmud could just become a, you know, a head trip. You're sharpening your brains, and it's very challenging. It's like playing chess. Better than playing chess. Much more stimulating and much more challenging. But to remember that studying Torah is more than just intellectual exercise, but it's something that's divine or something sacred and godly and holy. When you study Hasidut, this infused that you're studying of Talmud. And the studying was also in a different caliber because it's much more genuine, it's much more honest. If it's all about proving how sharp you are and how clever you are and how smart you are, and what you can, what novel interpretation you can come up with, then it's just, if it's just an ego trip, then you approach the Torah very cavalierly. You know, you don't, you don't approach it with the proper respect. When you study Torah and you realize that every letter and every word in the Torah is a vessel for the divine, is a, a, a reflection of the infinite, and it contains the infinite, so if you don't understand something in the Torah, it's not because there's something wrong in the Torah. It's because my mind is, is, is lacking. My mind is inherently limited. So you approach every word in the Torah with tremendous sense of awe of every word in the Torah, and especially the early rabbis. You, know, you don't just dismiss what Rashi says, so, and I think otherwise. <laughs> Rashi is a divine person, a holy person. You know, Rashi was his soul such a divine soul, and I think otherwise. You know, you, you, the whole approach to Torah is, 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 is with humility. The only way you can approach Torah is with humility, because it's, it's divine, it's godly. So therefore, if you don't understand something, firstly, you're going to try to find out the truth. You want to really understand, what is the Torah saying? Not what I say. It's not about I. I think, and I say, and I believe. I, 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 I. You can't approach Torah with I. You have to remove your I. The question is, what does Hashem say? 
What, how does the Torah think? How does the divine mind think? How does God think? So you have to remove your eye. So by studying Hasidut and becoming a little more humble and removing your eye, then you can approach Torah in a deep way, in a genuine way. You know, put your prejudices aside, put your ego on the side, and really get to the truth, get to the core of the Torah. So the learning of the Torah, even though they spend less hours studying Talmud than other academies of higher learning, which spend every minute of the day studying Talmud, there was absolutely no time for anything else. But in those hours that they'd study Torah, it was much deeper, much more genuine, much more honest, and also with the divine help. When Hashem sees that you're God-fearing and you're genuine and you're godly, Hashem helps you get straight to the point. You know, if someone thinks straight, you're consistently straight. A person who thinks crooked, it's not just in one area in his life is crooked. Every area in his life is crooked. If you can't think straight about one thing, you don't think straight about anything. But when you study Hasidut, it straightens your head out. Like you start seeing things. You start looking at this world, at reality from Hashem's point of view. Then you, you start seeing things a little deeper and you start appreciating the depth and the inner and going beyond the superficial understanding. Going beyond your ego, going a little deeper. So when you, when you have that approach, then it helps you in every area in your life. When you're studying Talmud, you also have a much more penetrating understanding, a much deeper understanding. So the students, the students were, were tremendous Torah scholars. They were God-fearing. They had a rich inner life. And they really developed into soldiers. You know, these became the Marines, the Jewish Marines. The, uh, or the special, the special, special services, the special, special forces. The, the Tamimim, the students of this yeshiva became, for the Jewish people, for the Jewish whole, they became the special forces. When you needed a special assignment, emergency assignment, who stayed in Russia and who kept the flame of Judaism alive and who sacrificed their lives to maintain mikvahs and to maintain yeshivot. It was only the students who studied in this yeshiva that the Rebbe, whose birthday was today, the fifth Rebbe, founded. Because they had that self-sacrifice, they had that, that, that egolessness, and they had that commitment and that passion that no one could suppress, not even Stalin. And these energetic, young vibrant people, they became the pillars of the community. They became the rabbis and they became and they, they traveled over Russia and they maintained this part. So this is not a job for an ordinary person. This is not even for an ordinary soldier. This is for the marines and even for the special forces. So it's, it's this yeshiva that really prepared the team that would really rescue the Jewish people or really keep the torch and flame of Judaism alive in the most direst, under the most direst circumstances. And then these same students were the same of this yeshiva were the ones who went out and sparked the renaissance of Jewish life that we see today. Who established Jewish communities. 4,000 Chabad houses literally in every corner of the world established flourishing Jewish communities in places that were not hospitable and were not even open to it. So again, these are the frontline troops. These are the... Uh, the uh, you know, the Marines that really started the beachhead and started the, the movement of Baal and thank God, many, many Jews have followed. 
they're the ones who really secured the beachheads, and they're the ones who, uh, you know, the, the tough assignments. When the, when the going gets tough, tough get going. You know, when things are going beautiful, you can't, then you don't see the difference in one and the other. Something that's superficial. You see a tree, a beautiful tree. But you don't know this tree has deep roots, or this tree is very superficial. The moment there's a wind, the moment there's a little of a hurricane, or a little of a flood, or a tsunami, then you see the deep-rooted trees remain firm. While the trees that were superficial get blown away with the smallest wind, the slightest wind. So it's it's times of crisis that you have that moment of truth. You see the difference. You see the difference in this education and this education. An education where you had the complete blending and the unity of the inner parts of the Torah, the soul of the Torah, and the external parts of the Torah, versus an education that the entire emphasis was only on the external part of the Torah, with zero or very little emphasis on anything else, especially the inner parts of the Torah. So the fact that we're sitting here today, and the fact that we're studying, uh, we have to be thankful to, to the... Uh, Fifth Rebbe, Fifth Babacher Rebbe, who made it all possible. He founded the yeshiva, and it was his foresight to train. This was a training ground. This yeshiva became the training ground for the, the crack troops, or the, uh, the front-line troops, or the, um, you know, whoever the Jewish people faced unusual circumstances, whether it was communism or whether it was Western assimilationism. And uh, so this is all the birthday. And the birthday, the soul of the person, your mazel is very strong on your birthday. So today the mazel of the fifth Rebbe is very strong. And, and uh, I'm sure this gives him great pleasure that Hasidim and Yidin are getting together and studying Hasidus and studying, stu- studying the Tanya. So this is a... Rebbe never met. Actually, it's very ironic, but he never met the fifth Rebbe. Even though he was 18 years old when he passed away, when the fifth Rebbe passed away, and his father was one of the biggest Hasidim of the fifth Rebbe. The fifth Rebbe said that there are three. I have three Hasidim that I'm going to boast about them in this world. I can boast about them in this world and in the world to come. I'll be able to boast about them. One of them was the Rebbe's father, Rebbe Levi's, who was a genius, a Kabbalist, a tzaddik, uh, you know. So it's one of these things that are inexplicable, you know. How is it the Rebbe was 18 years old, he never met. But the Rebbe once said, he says, thank God I never met the fifth Rebbe, because like this, when I met my father-in-law, the previous Rebbe, I was able to connect with him 100%. Because, you know, there's nothing like first impression. This was the first Rebbe that he saw. So he gave his whole soul to him. You know, if you saw another Rebbe, it's very difficult to make that transition from one Rebbe to another Rebbe. Every Rebbe has his own personality, every Rebbe has his own character. Even though it's one continuation, it's one link. But, you know, it's like a first marriage, a second marriage. It's not, you know, it's not the same. You know, you, 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 there's nothing like your first marriage, as the Talmud says, when you give your soul totally. So, you know, we don't, we don't have any explanation unless maybe it's very possible that this was some guidance from above, that, you know, that maybe Rabbi Levik was told that 
that the Rebbe belongs to the previous Rebbe and therefore he shouldn't bring him. You know, it's one of those things that, that I, we don't understand. But um, today is the birthday and um, his merit will surely, and his merit, everyone here will be blessed because it truly gives him tremendous nachas, his neshama, that that Yidin are gathered, Jews are gathered and studying Tanya, studying Hasidut. Uh, that's what he wanted, and that's 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 what gives him tremendous pleasure. So, what? So Luchayim. It looks the same, Luchayim. Okay, so we are holding in the middle of chapter thirty-seven, page four eighty-six. Now the Rebbe was explaining. How we are the ones, we are the active participants. We are the ones who actually bring about that purpose which is that God desired to feel at home in this world, to live in this world, so to speak, to feel completely at home, to be completely revealed, where His essence is completely revealed in this world. And which will be fully realized with the coming of Mashiach. Mashiach will come. This world will become a dwelling place for God. Godliness will be completely overt, tangible, palpable. You'll see it, you'll feel it. Not only the Jewish people, the whole entire world will become godly, a godly place where the essence of God is fully revealed, fully exposed, fully revealed. But who accomplishes this? Who achieves this? And how do we accomplish it? It's the Jewish people who accomplish it through studying Torah and doing the mitzvah. So that Mashiach is not just a reward for something else, but we actually create the reward. We actually create this purpose. We are partners. We make it happen through our effort. Through doing something active. In other words, this is a very activist approach towards Mashiach. Mashiach is not something that we sit passively and wait for the coming of Mashiach. Mashiach is an activist program to bring Mashiach. It's a very activist agenda. By studying Torah and doing mitzvot, we change this world. We take the darkness, we take the material objects of this world, and we transform them into something divine, into something godly, into something holy. When you do a mitzvah, you're taking the physical object that formerly was physical and material and tangible and actually covered up on godliness. It was like a shell that covered up in the inner fruit. By taking this physical object and doing a mitzvah with it, you actually transform this object and now it becomes a sacred object, a holy object. You reveal godliness in this object. You've drawn down God's infinite self, God's infinite light into this object. And this object now has become transformed. You've taken a portion of this world and you've transformed it into something godly and something divine. Instead of the object being dense and a concealment for godliness, this object now becomes a vehicle and a vessel and actually becomes a sacred object. It becomes a vehicle, a dwelling place for God. All the difference is we don't feel it. We don't sense it. We don't experience it. We don't sense how, how the world is transformed. Every time you do a mitzvah, you're changing the world. The world is changed and transformed. We don't sense it. 
But the fact remains, nevertheless, every time you do a mitzvah, any mitzvah, you are transforming this world. You're taking a piece of this world and you're making it into a godly place, a vessel for godliness. Now when Mashiach will come, this, what we've accomplished, will be revealed. In other words, Mashiach is not like something new or something different, a reward. You know, we're, we're doing, we're working, and God will reward us. No. Mashiach, we are, we are accomplishing Mashiach now. Through our efforts today, we are bringing Mashiach. Mashiach will be the revelation of everything that we have accomplished for the past few thousand years. All the mitzvah, all the portions of this world that we and the generations before us and generations before that, every one of us, every one of us, taking our portion of this world and transforming it into a godly place. So when Mashiach will come, all of that, everything we've accomplished will be revealed. It's like, it's like we're storing it. Right now it's stored. We're depositing money in the bank. We can't touch it. We can't use it. It's like your IRA. You're depositing it. It's growing. It's accumulating. You can't touch it. But it's there. <laughs> this, this is there. This, there's no market depression. There's no, uh, this remains. And it grows and it accumulates. The energy is there. Whatever we're accomplishing is there. But it's like treasure. It's put away. Mashiach will come. We'll open the treasure. And we'll see this wealth that we've amassed over thousands of years through sacrifice, dedication, devotion, mitzvot, Torah. All that energy and all that wealth that we've accumulated will be revealed. But, we, but we're accomplishing it now. So every time you're doing a mitzvah, it's really a, a, a taste of Mashiach. That's why he says the reward of the mitzvah is the mitzvah itself. Because the mitzvah itself is really a taste of Mashiach. You're transforming the material into something divine, into something godly. And that is Mashiach. What is Mashiach? Mashiach is when this world will become a godly place. Every time you're doing a mitzvah, you're making this world into a godly place. The physical, the material into a godly place. You don't feel it. You don't sense it. You don't experience it. A tzaddik. A holy Jew, the great Sadiqim, they felt it. As, it. as the Torah says, that God gave Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob a taste of the future. So a tzaddik gets a taste of the future because a tzaddik experiences in his Torah mitzvah today, he experiences the divine. And that's why the tzaddik is ecstatic. When he does a mitzvah, he's on fire. Because he feels, he senses, he experiences what is being accomplished. That by doing the mitzvah, you're drawing down God's infinite self. We study this we, in, in, in the chapter 10 in the Tanya. Who has the power to transform something material into something godly and divine? It's not a human ability. It's a divinely creative act. How do you take something material, something, and turn it back into nothing? How do you take something material and turn it into something sacred? Turning, turn it into something other than it is. How do you take darkness, materialism, this material, tangible world, which is, discon- I'm sorry, which, which is disconnected from God, doesn't point its finger to God. You look at this world, you look at a tree. I don't see God. You don't see the Creator. You look at this world. It's a complete cover-up. God is completely covered up, very effectively. 
it's like a shell, it hides, it conceals, it covers up from the inner fruit. You don't see, you don't feel, it doesn't point to anything other, other than itself. Ego, I, self-preservation. That's what this world is all about. So how can you take something material and physical and transform it into something God? Transform it into something other. A total transformation from being disconnected from God and then suddenly it becomes something else entirely. It becomes a holy object. It becomes a divine object. It becomes something sacred. A Torah scroll becomes a godly object. It's connected to God. It's, it's godly. Not just symbolically. But really, factually, you're not allowed to take it into a place that's unclean. You have to treat it with respect. Because it's godly. It's connected to God. Divine. The infinite. How do you take something finite, limited, tangible, and transform it into something godly? It's not within the human capacity. It's not within the angelic capacity. It's a purely divine act. That transformation is only from God. So every time you're doing a mitzvah, in a sense, it's like a repetition of Mount Sinai, the miracle of Mount Sinai. It's like, it's like God stirs, so to speak. Something stirs, God stirs and transforms this object into something godly, into something divine. And God empowered us to be able to be able to do it with each and every mitzvah. So in a sense, this is really Mashiach. You're making a dwelling place for God in this world. You're transforming, changing this world into something other. Instead of it being something coarse, materialistic, suddenly it becomes something other entirely. It becomes something sacred and holy and godly. So the tzaddik senses this. The tzaddik experiences it. And the tzaddik has such infinite pleasure, such indescribable, he's an indescribable ecstasy. When a tzaddik does a mitzvah, his whole being is doing the mitzvah. His mind, his heart, his soul. Because he gets a taste of the future. He's a citizen of the future. He sees what we're accomplishing today. And that's why he sees and feels Mashiach now. We do the mitzvah. And we take it on faith. That we're doing, we're accomplishing, we're changing, we're transforming, we're preparing. That this is, this is bringing Mashiach. Our activity is actually bringing Mashiach. Even though we don't see it, we don't sense it, we don't feel it, we don't experience it. And the mitzvah many times are a burden to us. We have to force ourselves to do the mitzvah. We have to discipline ourselves to do the mitzvah. It's difficult to do the mitzvah. Were we to feel what's really, what really is happening, we would, we would be dancing from joy. But it doesn't change the fact. The fact is that we are. Something unbelievable happens anytime you do a mitzvah. Something indescribable, miraculous, divine. Totally beyond our capacity of comprehension, and even beyond the angel's capacity of comprehension. To be able to transform the material and reveal God's essence in this world every time you do a mitzvah. But Mashiach will come after the accumulation of all the mitzvot, of all the centuries and the millennium. That will lead us to a moment the emerging and the revelation of Mashiach, which will be the revelation of everything that we've accumulated, all, all that we've accomplished over thousands of years, will suddenly, we'll all experience godliness. We'll see and sense the whole world will be transformed into godliness. And then it'll be obvious, self-evident, conscious. You'll see it, you'll feel it, you'll know it. With every fiber of your being, every bone in your body, you'll experience it.
It'll seem so natural. Godliness will seem so natural. The world, our world will be completely changed. It won't be the same world that we have now. Because it will be a godly world, a good world. A wholesome world. A kind world. A genuine world. Sounds familiar, right? <laughs> but now he's saying that the mitzvot transform. Not only do the mitzvot transform the material, the world with which you do the mitzvah with, the object with which you do the mitzvah, but that the mitzvot also transform your animal soul, your natural soul, your ego soul. Because you couldn't do the mitzvah without your animal soul. And that's how, he's, that's how he explains, going back to his earlier question, why is it that the majority of mitzvot engage in the material, your body, your animal soul, your ego, when you will never truly transform your ego and never truly transform your animal natural soul? So what's the point of pouring so much energy and so much effort in engaging the animal soul? Every mitzvah that you do engages the animal soul. Wouldn't it make more sense to concentrate on the spiritual aspect? You should just meditate. Meditation engages your, your spiritual self. It ignores your body, your ego. You transcend your ego, you transcend your body, and you meditate. Tune in, tune out, and meditate. Why spend so much energy and, and focus on your body, on your ego, on your animal soul, when you'll never really change it, you'll never really reach it? So it makes no sense. What's the point of every single mitzvah has to be physical, every single mitzvah has to be active, every single mitzvah has to engage in some way or form, shape or form, even the spiritual mitzvah must engage you physically. Why? And that's the answer, because by engaging in the animal soul, you are fulfilling the whole purpose of creation. The whole purpose of creation is to transform the material into something godly. That's what God desired. God desired. The end of creation is this world, the ego world. That's the end of creation. Everything else is a means to an end. The spiritual realm, spirituality, is a means to an end. That's not the end. Higher levels of consciousness, at best, are a means to an end. It's a necessary means to an end. An inspiring means to an end. But it's a means to an end. That's not the purpose. It's this material world. It's an end in itself. It's not a means to an end. Just like our egos are ends in itself. We sense ourselves we're an end to ourselves. We're the beginning, the middle, and end of all reality. I don't need any justification. I don't need any, any rhyme or reason. I am because I am, period. So the material world, the ego world that we live in, the ego conscious, the human physical being, natural animal ego self, is the world which is an end in itself. Because this is the end. This is the ultimate purpose of creation. God desired not that this world should remain as is, a coarse, materialistic, dark place. God wanted us to transform this darkness into light. But that's the end. That's the purpose. And the inspiration and the spirituality is just a means to an end. In order to be able to do the mitzvah properly, you have to be inspired, and you have to be spiritual, and you have to be refined, and you have to be sublime. And... But that's all the means to the end. The end is physically doing the mitzvah. And not your godly soul doing the mitzvah, your animal soul doing it. 
your natural self, your ego self, your human self, your conscious self, your very limited self, engaging your animal soul in doing the mitzvah, engaging every part of your animal soul in doing the mitzvah. That's the ultimate purpose. And it's only by engaging the animal soul that you transform that darkness into light, because that's the purpose, to take the darkness and the ultimate darkness and to transform it into something godly. So when the animal soul does the mitzvah, the animal soul becomes transformed. Because since it's impossible to do the mitzvah without the animal soul, if you don't eat, you don't have energy. If you don't have a hand, you don't move your hand, you can't, you can't light the candles. It's physical. You need energy, you need strength. So you need food, you need something physical. You need a human being, a human form, and a body. So without the body, without the ego, without the animal, natural soul, without that energy, you don't have the ability even to do the mitzvah. So the animal soul becomes part of the mitzvah, an integral part of the mitzvah, an indispensable part of the mitzvah and become sanctified through the mitzvah. So you're transforming the darkness into life. And that's the whole purpose of creation. That's the, whole, that's the end. That's why the soul came down into this world. And that's why every mitzvah must engage the, material, the physical. Um, in the middle of page 486, thus far. Thus far, the author Rebbe has discussed the effect of a mitzvah on the objects used in its performance. Example, the etrog, parchment used with stone, etc. He now discusses its effect on the power of a Jew's animal soul that is applied to the mitzvah. This soul, like the aforementioned objects, derives its vitality from the klipanoga, and like them, it experiences a similar elevation to the realm of holiness whenever it is used in the service of a mitzvah, being absorbed into the divine will represented by the mitzvah. In the Alta Rebbe's words, similarly, the power of the vitalizing animal soul clothed in the bodily limbs of a person who performs a mitzvah likewise clothes itself in the deed of the mitzvah. Thereby it ascends from the klipa to be absorbed into the holiness of the mitzvah, which is his will, and is nullified within the blessed ein Sof light. Alter Rebbe now goes on to say that those mitzvah involving speech alone likewise affect this elevation of the animal soul. Even though here the animal soul's power is not brought to bear in the performance of any mitzvah. Even in the case of such a mitzvah as Torah study, reciting the Shema, prayer, and the like, the animal soul's power is elevated to holiness. Although they do not involve actual physical action which is under the dominion of the Klipanova, yet it is an accepted principle that thought is not a substitute for speech, and one does not fulfill his duty of Torah study, prayer, etc., unless he actually utters the words with his lips. It is also accepted that moving one's lips constitutes action, and such action as the Reverend Schlieffen notes likewise stems from the vitality of the Klippa Noga that is nourished by the animal soul, as does the actual bodily action spoken of earlier. So even the mitzvot, the spiritual mitzvot, like prayer, which is essentially a mitzvah of the heart, you have to love Hashem in prayer, a mitzvah like studying Torah, which engages the mind to understand the Torah. So it doesn't involve anything material. It's more internal. It's not external. All the other mitzvahs are external. You have to light the match, light the candle, you have to take, shake the lulav and the esrog, the parchment, giving tzedakah. It's all external. Prayer and studying Torah is more internal. 
personal, subjective. You have to be inspired in prayer. You have to concentrate in prayer. You have to study Torah. You have to concentrate your mind. So it's not, it doesn't involve the material world, but even that involves your ego, your animal self. Because the Torah says that it's not enough to sit quietly, close your eyes and meditate. As do most religions. You walk into most houses of prayer. It's very silent. Everyone is lost in meditation. It's quiet. Not in the shul. You walk into a shul, it's an amazing sight. Everyone is talking to themselves. I mean, someone who's not used to it, we take it for granted. Someone who's not used to it, it's very strange. You don't find it anywhere in the world. You walk into a house of learning. It's not like walking into a library. You walk into Harvard University, you walk into a library, it's quiet, everyone is busy learning. You walk into a house and it's a tumult. Everyone's arguing with each other, everyone's discussing and talking because we learn Torah by verbalizing. It's not enough just to study Torah quietly and meditate. You have to verbalize what, you, what you're studying. Why is it important? You would, see, you would think it's even a distraction. Prayer should be a time of silence. Quiet. Go deep inside yourself. Stop speaking. Go beyond words. Words are limiting. In prayer, you're trying to, to escape the confines of your ego. You tr- you should, it's a time to reach a higher level of consciousness. You should quiet your words and go beyond words. And the Torah says, not only haven't you done a mitzvah, the whole mitzvah of prayer is you must speak. If you don't speak, you have not fulfilled the mitzvah. If you don't physically say the Shema, why do I have to physically say the Shema? I should close my eyes and and meditate. You have to physically say the Shema, you have to physically say the words of prayer. And even when you're studying, you have to physically study Torah. Why? Because moving your lips is called an action. It's not the same action as the other mitzvah where you physically do the action with your hands shaking the lulav and the esrog, eating the matzah, can't compare the two. But nevertheless, it's called a small action. Moving your lips is called a small action. It's a physical activity. You have to physically move your lips. But the idea is, again, to engage your ego, to engage your body, to engage your natural soul, your natural soul. And the reason is because you have to engage your animal soul. You have to engage your ego. If you would quietly meditate or you would be absorbed in learning, you would quietly be absorbed in learning, then it would only affect your godly soul. It would leave your animal soul, your ego soul, your natural soul completely out, cold. Can't relate to it. But the whole purpose is to engage your animal soul. That that fun-seeking, thrill-seeking animal self, you have to engage it in prayer. So you have to move your lips. You have to do something bodily, something physical, something that engages, engages your, your physical self. And the same thing is with studying Torah. It's only when you speak the words of Torah, you verbalize the words of Torah, that you're actually engaging your, your, your animal self. And therefore, it also becomes part of the mitzvah. The previous Rebbe said, he brought out another aspect that even those mitzvot, which are the mitzvah to love Hashem, which is a purely spiritual mitzvah. Even that mitzvah, firstly, it's given to a human being, a physical human being. Not given to an angel. It's given to a, real, a human being of flesh and blood that we have to develop a love for God. 
How can a human being of flesh and blood, we love material things. We love to indulge. That we should develop an appreciation and a love for godly things, for spiritual things, that alone means we have to engage and involve our material self. But he said even deeper than that. The mitzvah itself, to love God, has to be the equivalent of a physical love. The love has to reach such a level that you should physically feel that love. Just like, he gives the analogy, when you have, when you meet your best friend, and suddenly, out of the blue, you had a rough day. Your heart is, you're a little, you're a little you know, you're a little out of it, or you're a little demoralized, or you're, you have a pressing problem, you have a heavy, a heavy load on your, on, you know, a heavy load on your chest. You have a heavy heart. And suddenly you bump into your best friend. You brighten. You brighten up. You suddenly your heart feels lighter. It's like a load off your chest. You physically feel the shift, the change. It's physical. You can, it's tangible. Suddenly you feel, you feel like, you, like, like you can breathe. And it inspires you. And it lifts, lifts your mood. You can physically, tangibly feel the difference. So the love is not just abstract. The love is tangible. Your heart starts, starts palpitating. When you feel a fear, when you're in fear of something, and your heart starts trembling. It's physical. I guess like the brokers in the market the last few days. When the market goes up 18 times in one day, <laughs> your heart sinks every time it goes up. Your heart is up, your heart is down. It can drive you mad. But it's physical. It's tangible. It's not just abstract. So he said, so too the mitzvah to love Hashem has to be in the same level. And the mitzvah to be in awe of Hashem has to be in the same level. That as a result of your love, even if you're having a rough day and you're having difficulties and you have a heavy heart, but when you remind yourself of your love for Hashem, suddenly you feel lighter. You feel confident. It inspires you. You feel uplifted. Your Your mood is uplifted. You feel lighter. It gives you the energy and the strength to tackle... That's what the love of Hashem means. It has to, it has to translate to something physical, to something tangible, something that your animal soul could feel, something that your conscious self could feel. Otherwise, it's just abstract. If it's an abstract love, yes, your godly soul is inspired, but it leaves you cold. It leaves your body cold, it leaves your ego cold, it leaves your animal, your natural self cold. Your conscious self it has to be physical, it has to be tangible. The whole purpose of creation The whole goal, the whole theme of existence, the whole purpose why God created the world is because He desired to have a dwelling place for God. He wanted us to take the darkness, which seemingly is not a vessel, a vehicle for anything spiritual and godly. It's the antithesis of anything spiritual. And this physical, material darkness should become a vessel, a vehicle for God, a home for God, where God's essence is revealed. So therefore, every single mitzvah, from the most spiritual mitzvah, has to affect you physically. It has to engage you physically. You have to move your lips, engage your body, when you study Torah and when you pray. Bottom of 47. For the divine soul cannot express itself with the physical lips, mouth, tongue, or teeth, 
the instruments of speech except by way of the vitalizing animal soul actually clothed in the organs of the body. The divine soul is entirely spiritual, the body physical. Therefore, as explained in chapter 35, the divine soul cannot activate the body to perform a mitzvah except through an intermediary. This intermediary is the animal soul, which on the one hand is a soul, a spiritual life force, yet on the other hand is actually clothed in the blood and the bodily organs. This intermediary is necessary in mitzvot, performed through speech, just as in the mitzvot performed through action. For articulating the words required for the mitzvah also constitutes physical action, so that this too cannot be accomplished by the divine soul except by way of the animal soul's power. So just like when you do a mitzvah, so not only does the object with which you do a mitzvah become sacred and holy, but the animal soul, the energy that's moving your arms and that's moving your legs and that's... And without that, you couldn't do the mitzvah. That also becomes sacred. That also becomes... That energy also becomes part of the mitzvah. Becomes an, uh, an indispensable tool. You couldn't do the mitzvah without it. So it becomes a vehicle for, the, for Hashem, for the divine. So it becomes par- part of Hashem. Continue, hence. Hence, the more forcefully one speaks words of Torah or prayer, the more of the animal soul's energy he introduces and clothes in these words. Thereby, he converts more of the energy of the klipa to holiness. This is also the meaning of the verse, All my bones shall declare, Hashem who is like you. Which means that the words of Torah and prayer must be said with all of one's bones, so that as much as possible of the body's energy be utilized in performing the mitzvah. We all know the difference between words when we speak about something we don't care about, or when we speak about something we're very passionate about. When people talk about things they're very passionate about, they're very eloquent. They pour their whole heart and soul into it. So when you do a mitzvah, when you're studying Torah, and you study it with vitality, with passion, when you're praying and you put your whole heart and soul into it, and the, the words are alive, they're warm, they're on fire, they're passionate, you put your whole, you focus your whole concentration on these words, your body, your conscious self is completely concentrated on the words of Torah and the words of prayer. So you're, you're engaging, your entire animal soul is engaged. You're, you're pouring so much more energy into the mitzvah. So the greater the level of engagement, the, a greater part of the animal soul becomes transformed and changed into something divine, something God. So that's why the Torah says it's, it's, you should pray, not just move your lips, but you should put your whole, every bone in your body, Every bone in your body, every fiber of your being should be engaged in, in the words of prayer and the words of Torah. Don't just study Torah with, with half of your mind asleep. When you speak words of Torah, it should be alive. You should, your whole being should be immersed in the words of Torah. When you pray, your whole being should be immersed in the words of prayer. So then you, you're... It's not only quantity, it's also quality. You're taking the whole depth of your soul, your animal soul, all that energy, all that strength that you have, all that energy that you have, all that stored energy, that physical energy, that raw energy that you have. And you're transforming it into something godly. Because that energy is there. If you're not going to use it for something holy, it'll be used for other things. So when a person takes all that wild, raw unbridled, passionate, 
Bacchanalian energy that we have inside of us, and you, you express it in the words of prayer, and in the words of Torah, you're taking your whole animal soul, and you're connecting it with God. Because by, by doing the mitzvah, using this energy and sublimating this energy into this mitzvah, so it becomes part of the mitzvah. And therefore it becomes sacred and holy. So if the whole purpose of the mitzvah are in order to engage the animal soul, it's not enough just to superficially engage the animal soul. You have to engage as much as possible of the animal soul. Every part of the animal soul should be engaged. So it's not enough just to pray cold-bloodedly and just to move your lips. It's not just about moving the lips. It's about pouring all that energy, all that strength that you have, all that ability to concentrate and that ability to focus and all the energy and strength that you have, you should pour it into the words of prayer. And in studying. So then, your whole being, every bone in your body, every fiber of your being, your whole animal soul, becomes engaged and becomes transformed. The darkness becomes transformed to something godly, into something, something divine. Like, how do you do that? Like, sometimes it's, it's you know, easier than other times. Like, what do you do? You can't do 100% Sometimes you can fake it. You know, it's like when you smile, you're not in the mood. You have no kindness to give. You're not in the mood. You've exhausted all your kindness. You're not in the mood. And smile anyway. You know what happens? After a while, you'll, you'll start smiling inwardly. Act kindly even if you don't feel like it. You know what happens? You'll become a mensch. <laughs> it'll, it'll soften your harsh spots and suddenly you'll, you'll, you'll see an amazing impact. So to pray, say the words with passion even if you don't feel it. And you know what? Maybe the passion will come. It's, it's the power of action. Don't underestimate the power of action. It can't hurt. It's, it's, it can hurt. And also the whole behavioral psychology is really based in the Torah. The Torah says that actions have such impact on us, have such an effect on us, you can't even imagine. You can change your whole personality. If someone is born kind, or he just pretends to be mean, it's an act, because it's not his nature. He's the nicest person in the world. You know, after a while, he'll become mean. <laughs> he'll affect his character. Vice versa. You can take the cruelest person in the world. Well, let's say he's acting. Someone gave him an assignment. Pretend. Act as if you're the nicest person in the world. We have freedom of choice. We're not animals. We can choose. We can choose any role we want. The harshest person who's born with the harshest tendencies, if you want to, there's nothing in the world stopping you. I can act. I'll choose to, be, to behave as if I'm the nicest person. Nothing's stopping you. You're not forced to act in any way. You can act however you want. We are the only creatures in the universe that have real freedom of choice. So I'll, I'll role play. Pretend. For one week, I'll pretend I'm the nicest person in the world. And act as if I was the nicest, the most loving, the kindest even though I'm mean, I'm horrible, and I hate you, and I hate everyone, and I hate mankind, and I'm uh, misanthrop misanthropic, fine. But I'll pretend that I'm loving and kind and generous and gentle. Let me pretend. You know, if you act long enough, <laughs> you'll, you'll see, it'll change you. You'll become a new person. It'll change you completely. So again, the, the mitzvah is engage your animal soul, engage your body. 
Say the words with warmth, even if you don't feel it inside. Say it. Take that energy that you have and concentrate. That's the whole point. The point is, even though we know that we can't transform, until Mashiach comes, we cannot transform our animal souls. When Mashiach will come, the world will be a dwelling place for God. That is Mashiach. Our animal souls will be transformed. Our pleasures will be godliness. We'll only be attracted to godliness. We'll be completely transformed. We won't even have a Yetzirah anymore. We won't even have an evil inclination. But until Mashiach comes, we know that throughout our lifetime, we can lead a disciplined life and we can study the Torah and do the mitzvah 24-7 for 120 years. And the 119th day and the 353rd day of our life, it's still going to be a struggle. And it's still a test. So the question is, why pour all this energy in the animal soul if I know I can't truly transform the animals? And that's what he's explaining. That when you realize that every time you do a mitzvah and every time you're engaging your animal soul in the mitzvah, you are creating a piece of Mashiach. You are creating something cosmic. You are transforming the whole cosmos. You are transforming reality itself. The very fabric of reality is being changed, transformed. Every time you do a mitzvah, every time a Jew does a mitzvah, you're transforming the very fabric of creation. You are taking something dense, something material, something tangible, something limited, that's so limited. That's the antithesis of everything spiritual. And you are transforming it into something godly, into something divine. You're taking your ego, you're taking your animal soul, you're taking that ego-centered motivation, and you are transforming that soul, that energy, that darkness, into something godly, into something divine. A soul that's motivated by thrill-seeking and fun-seeking, a self-preservation and indulgence, doesn't relate to anything godly. And by, by pouring the energies of your soul into the words of prayer, and by pouring the energies of your soul into the, into the words of Torah, into the learning and studying of Torah, you are transforming that darkness into something godly. It's a miracle. It's a divine miracle. You're changing the very fabric of existence. You don't feel it. You don't sense it. You don't experience it. It doesn't change the reality. But it, it encourages you. Instead of thinking, why am I wasting my time? Why am I wasting my energy? I'm going to struggle for 120 years. I hope someone is enjoying this. <laughs> Because it's so much of a struggle. It's such a painful struggle. And you don't see the reward. Till Mashiach comes, you don't see the reward. And the struggle remains. But when you realize that something cosmic is happening here, you are fulfilling every time you do a mitzvah, every time you engage your animal soul in the words of prayer, every time you engage your animal soul, that energy, that, animalist, uh, that animalistic bacchanalian energy, you're investing it in the words of Torah. You are fulfilling the purpose of creation, the purpose of the cosmos. You're transforming the very fabric, the very material of the whole cosmos. Just being aware of it, knowing that intellectually, could inspire you, that what you're doing is something monumental. We're not playing games here. This is very, something very real is happening. This is not rituals, customs. This is something that at the very core and essence of reality is something very real is happening. Imagine we had the ability to change reality on, on the atomic level. I mean, we have this God-given ability to change the very fabric of existence itself. 
transform from something material into something divine, to something God. Something other. It's like there's, every time you do a mitzvah, there's this stirring, and it trans, it's transformed into something else in time. Something divine, the essence of God. Infinite. Godly. So knowing that gives you the courage and the strength to carry on. That, that this struggle is worthwhile. We're accomplishing something worthwhile. A person needs to know that what you're doing is meaningful. If a person knows that what you're doing is meaningful, we can handle the, all the struggles in, in life, the greatest struggle. If a person feels that what I'm doing is, not, is meaningless, then, then you lose heart. Then you have, you have no strength to do what you need to do. So as long as we know, we understand the meaning, what we're doing is meaningful. So yes, it's a struggle. And it will remain a struggle for the rest of our lives till Mashiach comes. It hasn't happened yet. And it's a struggle. We can all testify from our personal experience. As of today, this moment, we know that life is a struggle. And we have to struggle with negativity. Mashiach hasn't come yet. If you have any doubt, just look at yourself. Look in the mirror. I don't think there's anyone delusional enough to think that Mashiach came already. The redemption came already. Our Yetzirah is alive and well. <laughs> very, very alive and very well. Thank God. So, it's a struggle. But instead of losing hope, instead of feeling hopeless, what's the point? Why am I working so hard to engage my animal soul when I don't see the nachas, I don't see the change, the transformation? But when you remember that it's meaningful, what you're doing is meaningful, what you're accomplishing is something, so, is it something that touches the very core and essence of existence itself. The whole cosmos is being transformed. Every time we do a mitzvah, that gives meaning to the struggle. So our lives are not in vain. God didn't just create our lives just to suffer and just to, God forbid, just to make life difficult. This struggle, this difficulty is, is, is critical, is essential, and it's meaningful. Because not only every time you overcome the struggle, every time you overcome the difficulty, but by engaging the animal soul, you're actually taking, engaging the darkness itself and transforming the darkness into light. Taking this energy, this animalistic energy that we have, this ego, natural energy that that's lives for self-preservation and it's all that matters, and to transform it into something godly, it becomes an integral part of the mitzvah, indispensable part of the mitzvah. And by, by saying the words emphatically and enthusiastically and passionately and saying each word with all the energy that you have and focusing on the words of Torah and saying the words of Torah with, with every, every ounce of energy and concentration that you have, you are engaging your entire animal soul and you're engaging and transforming that energy and that soul into something divine and God. So that's our choice. We have a choice. You can do that. Even if you don't feel it inside. Do it. Do the action. And the action will change you. Eventually the action will change you. The action will reach you. That's the power of action. We live in the world of action. And it, it's, it can make you into a different person. We're influenced by our actions. It's not just up here. It's not all about process and mind and 
spiritual meditation, the action is so deep, so powerful, touches us in such a profound way. The physical, the material, the tangible, the action, the deep. The... So you see there are many Jews who daven who pray, and even when they're not in the mood, not every day you're in the mood to pray. Not every day do you, every day do you feel like praying. They daven and they concentrate and they focus and they, it, it will eventually change you. And the animal soul is affected. Whether you feel it or not, the animal soul is affected. It is transformed into, into something godly. Whether you feel inspired or not, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. The reality is that the animal soul is affected. The animal soul is changed. Just because we're not aware this reminds me of a story. The fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, his grandchildren, his previous Rebbe's daughters, I think once discussing the idea of angels. And because, you know, to an atheist, he hears about angels. He's like, he starts laughing at angels. I can't see an angel. I don't see an angel. You know, it's like, it's like a ghost. It's, it's, it's. So the, the Rebbe Rashab, whose birthday is today, told them, he says, you know, I'll give you an analogy. Two professors. Nobel Prize winners who were traveling to this conference, this international conference, on the cutting edge of science, whatever their field was. So you have the horses are traveling to this conference, the wagon driver, the taxi drivers, the wagon drivers are traveling to the conference, and the two professors are traveling to the conference. Now what's going on? What is the horse thinking about? What is the wagon driver thinking about? What, is the, what are the professors thinking about? The horses are thinking about, oh, when we get to Berlin, we have a stable there, first-class stable. We're going to eat like we haven't eaten in months. That's their reality. That's the reality. That's the extent of their reality that they relate to. That's the whole world. The whole world, they're thinking about the hay, the hay in Berlin is much better than the hay in the little village. First class. Then you have the wagon driver. What's the wagon driver thinking about? The wagon driver thinking, oh, they get to the big city. I'll visit the bar, the tavern. I'll explore the city before I have to drive him, drive him back. He's dreaming about the big city. You know, he grew up in a little village, dreaming about the big city. He'll get paid. He'll have enough money. He'll be able to have a good time. Enjoy the big city. What are the two professors talking about? They're talking about physics, modern physics. They're talking about atoms. They're talking about the cutting edge of the most advanced intellectual knowledge of the day and age. So he says, tell me. Because the animals are thinking of hay, so the professors and their, and their brilliance and their knowledge is not is not real. In other words, a human being whose whole life is materialistic can't think beyond themselves. So just because your whole world is materialistic and egotistical and you can't even imagine that there's something other, something greater, something deeper, something... But it doesn't change reality. So the animal continues to think about the hay. But the animal was an, becomes an indispensable part of this journey. 
Because without the animal, you can't, you, the professors can't get to the conference. So the animal soul, even if the animal soul remains unchanged and indifferent to anything godly, it doesn't relate to it. So you're doing the mitzvot with the animal soul. You're doing the mitzvot with the animal energy and the animal soul is not, is not interested. Does it change the reality? That the animal soul became an indispensable part for you praying to Hashem, for you fulfilling the mitzvah, praying to Hashem, for you fulfilling the mitzvah, studying Torah, for you fulfilling all the mitzvot? No. It has become part of that godly reality. Even if you don't feel it, you don't experience it, it doesn't change the reality. Something very meaningful has happened. So every time you do a mitzvah, you're accomplishing something, something monumental, something earth-shattering. And knowing that, that gives meaning to my struggle. And that's all a person needs, as long as it has, it has meaning. If it doesn't have meaning, it will be, it will be demoralizing. Why am, why am I struggling? It's hopeless. I can never change. The more I change, the more I stay the same. What, what, what do I need this for? What am I doing? What am I accomplishing? A person can't live with meaninglessness. But once you appreciate the meaning, what's really being accomplished every time you do a mitzvah, you're transforming the universe. Every time you do a mitzvah, every time you pray, you take that energy, that animalistic energy, and you're praying, you're transforming your animal soul into something divine and God. Even if you don't understand it, you don't appreciate it, you don't grasp it, it doesn't change the reality. So that gives meaning to the struggle. That gives you the energy, the strength that you need to carry on with the struggle. And knowing that ultimately, the struggle will pay off. Because ultimately, as a result of all these struggles, and as a result of all these mitzvot, and as a result of all this energy, and all this, we will reach the point where the animal will no longer be an animal. The animal will be transformed. And we'll see godliness. The animal will see godliness. The world will see godliness. The entire world will sense and feel and experience godliness. Continue the second paragraph from the bottom, page 488. This is why our sages have said, if the Torah abides in all of your 248 limbs, it is preserved in your memory. Otherwise, it is not preserved. For forgetfulness is matters of Torah esteem from the klipa of the body and vitalizing animal soul, derived from the klipa noga, which is sometimes absorbed into holiness. When it is absorbed into holiness, there is no longer any cause of forgetfulness. This is accomplished when one weakens the power of body and animal soul, applying all their strength to the holiness of Torah and prayer. This, then, is the meaning of the aforementioned quotation. When one involves the energy of all these 248 limbs in Torah study, it is preserved in his memory. For the klipa that causes one to forget has been witnessed. So when the Talmud says that if a person not only studies Torah, not only does mitzvot, not only prays, but he prays with his whole might and his whole strength, and with every fiber of his being, and every bone in his body, then the Torah that he learns will be preserved in his memory. What's the connection? I do mitzvot with enthusiastically and passionately, and, and with every ounce of energy that I have, and every bit of strength that I have, I'll remember the Torah. What's the connection? He says, the connection is because where does forgetfulness come from? 
Forgetfulness comes from klipa, from ego. Children remember tremendous memories. They absorb massive amounts of information. By the age of six, I think we stop learning or slow down dramatically. The amount of learning that we do when we're young because children are egoless. They're unselfconscious. They're like in a trance. Till the age of six, children are like in a trance. They absorb massive amounts of information. And, and, and you don't forget, it's forever. The impressions of youth stays forever. You have a clean slate. You have no, no blockage. You have no preconceived notions. Baggage. No baggage. You're just open. You're just open. You're just open and you're hungry and you... And you learn, and everything leaves such an impression. Because you're open, you're open to the information. You're vulnerable. Children are vulnerable. Children are not afraid to be vulnerable. That's why children are so... We love them to death. You can't help but love a kid. Because children are not afraid to be vulnerable. There's no defenses. There's no anything artificial. There's no... You know, we are so protective as we grow up as adults. We become so protective. God forbid to share a genuine emotion. God forbid to reveal a weakness. God forbid to expose anything real. You know, someone said he, he, he made an experiment. He was on a date. He said, you know what, Let, let's make an experiment. <laughs> share any thought you have without, without filtering it. The next five minutes. It lasted two minutes. <laughs> Because it was, too, it was too painful, too difficult. <laughs> because you don't, you, you don't want to say the truth, and every thought you think 20 times, shouldn't they say? And, you know, children are, children are guileless. Children are what? They're genuine. Whatever it is, it is. There's no ego. They're not self conscious. There's no twisting, there's no distortion. It's real. And therefore, whatever they do, they care about very deeply. Children cry. They hurt, they're hurt. They allow themselves to be hurt, and they cry. They're not ashamed to cry. Or they're ecstatic. Sometimes it happens within two minutes. They're crying, and a minute later, they're dancing. Because when you care, they care deeply about it, they allow, they allow themselves to be affected by what they hear, what they know. When you care deeply about something, something that really matters to you, you don't forget. You don't forget. It's amazing what memories we have when it comes to things that really matter to us. We're forgetful because the more egotistical we become and the more self-absorbed we become and the more, the more rigid we become, you know, we don't allow our souls to really be touched and affected and truly live. And, and therefore, we, we are so protective of ourselves, like a shell, a klipa, that shell that covers up, that we stop really living. So then it just becomes artificial knowledge. Artificial knowledge, you forget. Who cares about artificial knowledge? If it's not relevant to my life, and I don't care about the subject matter, it's just cramming information that's irrelevant to my life. Who cares about it? So you, it's instantly forgettable. In one ear and out the other. But when you really care about something, and you allow something to touch you personally, and you allow it to be affected by it, you'll never forget it the rest of your life. So when a person is kalipa, a person is egotistical and self-absorbed and very self-conscious, and the more self-conscious you are, and the more, the more rigid you become, and the more forgetful you become. When a person is light, when a person is genuine, when a person is deep, when a person is, is egoless, then, then you don't forget. Everything that you learn touches your soul, affects you, 
in a very deep way. And you'll never forget it. It leaves an impression in you. Something that leaves an impression you'll never forget. So klipa is the source of forgetfulness. What happens when a person engages his animal soul, his animal energy, which is the klipa, that's the soul that lives for self-preservation, for ego, for self. When you engage that animal soul, take all that energy, all that strength, and pour it into the Torah, into the mitzvah, and into the prayer. Then you've transformed the darkness into light, the egotism, that ego energy you've transformed into divine, into godly. Therefore, that's the antidote to forgetfulness. That's the cure to forgetfulness. Because when you're godly, and you're connected, and you're genuine, and you're real, then you remember. So if you study Torah, and you study Torah, your whole being is studying Torah. And you're studying Torah because it's divine. And because it's divine, therefore, you're studying Torah. It's not just an intellectual exercise. It's a divine. It's a mitzvah. And therefore, you're studying Torah properly. You're studying Torah by speaking the words of Torah, not just thinking the words of Torah. And you're studying Torah by speaking the words of Torah passionately and with every ounce of energy that you have and every, every, every ounce of concentration that you can muster and engage your whole animal soul, then you've transformed the klipa, the shell, into something divine, something holy and something godly. And then the godly soul could, the godly soul could function. And that's the antidote to forgetfulness. That Torah that you learn, you'll remember. It will come etched into your being. It'll leave an impression. It'll impact you. It'll sear into your soul. And you'll never forget that Torah. So if Torah, if you study Torah and it's irrelevant to your life, and it's just an intellectual exercise, that Torah you're going to forget. But if you're studying Torah, and you experience the Torah, and it engages you, and it's something divine and godly and touches you very deeply, that Torah you're going to remember. So we, we have the cure. We just learned the cure for forgetfulness. <laughs> People think they forget. The reason they really forget is because as you grow older, maybe you become a little more rigid, a little more egotistical, a little more self-absorbed, a little less open to life. That's what the Torah says. But Avraham, in this week's Torah portion, Avraham Zakin Baba Yaman. Avraham was old, and he entered into his days. So what does it mean, Avraham was old, and he entered into his days? So the Rebbe explains it means that Avraham lived every day, he lived fully. He allowed himself to experience life and to be vulnerable to life and to be open to life. Unlike the natural course of things is as you grow older, you become a little more jaded, a little more cynical. I've seen it all. You become a little more detached. You lose that youthfulness, that, vi that vibrancy, that vigor, that allowing yourself to experience something new, allowing yourself to discover uh, you know, I've been around the block, I've seen it all, I've experienced it all. And in a certain sense, you become detached from life. And therefore, you become very forgetful. But when you allow yourself to remain youthful and open, 
and vulnerable. Then every day is memorable. Every day is an experience. It's a deep experience, a fresh experience. So that's what the Pasuk means. Avram was old. And nevertheless, and after all his experiences, he entered into the day. He allowed himself to immerse in the experience, to be touched by the experience, to laugh, to cry, to be affected, to care, to get involved. So when you live life on that level, you'll never forget. When you care deeply about something, it leaves an impression. The Rebbe was known. The Rebbe had an unbelievable memory. He would see a person, many people he met in private audience, and, and the people will relate to you personally. And they haven't seen the Rebbe in 30 years. And then they showed up once for a Sunday dollar. And like the Rebbe called them by their name and carried on the conversation that he had 30 years ago. 30 years later, tens of thousands of people went by. And they were like shocked. The Rebbe remembered them by name, remembered the conversation. How is it possible? But if you know and you believe that everything is divine providence, every encounter is a soul encounter. It's not just superficially, externally, you two people meet. The truth is everything is divine providence. Everything has an inherent connection. You know, the Rebbe meets them. It's a an, it's an divine providence. The two Jews meet. It's inherently connected. If you live life on that level where everything is divine providence and everything is godly and everything is inherently connected on the deepest level. It's beyond just the surface, external, superficially, circumstantially. We happen to meet and we happen to... There's no happen to meet, happen to come together, happen to have a conversation. Everything is on the deepest level. Everything is divine providence. is an inherent connection. So if you, if you live life on that level, that will leave an impression forever. You'll never forget that. There's no forgetfulness. As it says in front of the Kisi HaKavet, before the throne of glory, Hashem's throne, there's no forgetfulness. When you're connected to the divine, when you realize everything in this world is divine, there's no forgetfulness. So when you, when you study Torah and it's divine, and when you engage your animal soul and you transform it into something divine, there's no forgetfulness. When everything is sacred and everything is holy, and you realize every time you're studying Torah with every fiber of your being, every bone in your body, something real is happening, something meaningful, something, something extraordinary, miraculous, transformational. You'll never forget that experience. You'll never forget that Torah that you study. It will leave such an impact on your soul and your mind, such an impression. That Torah will stay with you forever. And sit with you and stay with you and continue to inspire you. Not just intellectually, but it will change you. That Torah will transform you. That Torah will change you. That Torah will affect you. That Torah will elevate you. That you'll never forget. If something touches you personally, you'll never forget. If Torah is just a mind game, it's just a head trip, that's forgetful. It's easily forgetful. But the Torah that touches you and affects you and changes you and transforms you, that Torah you'll never forget. That will remain etched into your being forever and ever. To be continued.